You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Get more from Buck by following him on social media at Buck Sexton on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Welcome, my friends, to the Buck Sexton Show. Joe Biden taking a victory lap yesterday because the Electoral College has certified his win. And we have to take stock of where we are right now in response to this. And I think that everyone needs to understand there's going to be a lot of frustration here. There's going to be a lot of of agitation because, yes, we know there was fraud. Yes, we know that the Democrats stacked the deck in their favor with the elimination of anti-fraud safeguards using COVID-19 as an excuse. But the process is continuing on. And with each passing week now, it's favoring Joe Biden. That's that's just an objective reality that we're dealing with. Is there the possibility that there will be some last minute case that something will come up that will be able to finally prove definitively that there was systematic and intentional fraud? The kind of proof that even a weak willed, even a cowardly judge would have to say for fear of shaming his profession or her profession would have to say, yes, you're correct. This is fraud. We cannot certify the results in these states. Yes, it is possible. Is it likely? I think you all know the answer to that. Joe Biden now is feeling like he is inevitable, that this is over. This is done with. We can continue. You know that old you can walk and chew gum at the same time. We can continue to look for that fraud. We can dive into the Antrim County uh, autopsy report from the uh, voting machines, right? The uh, the deep dive that they did. I, I read it last night. I'm curious to see what's going to be done with it. I'm sure the DOJ is aware of it. I'm sure that this is being looked at. Now, being looked at is not the same thing as action taken on, but I, I believe that there are people who are going to read this thing and take a look at whether or not it, it changes the uh, certification in a place like Michigan. But we have to look at that and also understand that Joe Biden is preparing for his administration at this point, And this is likely what we are going to face. And I understand there's going to be heat that I get for this. I understand that people don't want to hear this, but I always tell you that I will speak the truth to you as I see it. And I, and I believe that this is the objective truth right now. It is a future uh, it is a, an issue of, of the future. It is a prediction in a sense, right? The future has not happened yet. To borrow from the Terminator films, the future is not yet set. But we need to understand what the reality of the numbers tells us right now. And prepare accordingly, including making sure that we focus on the race right ahead of us here in Georgia. Because a Biden administration with the House and the Senate in Democrat control is a very different thing than a Biden administration with divided Congress with a divided Congress. They're going to have to prop up this really buffoonish, clownish and yes, corrupt fellow and spend a tremendous amount of time and energy and resources just to make sure the American people don't see for themselves. This is the this is the clown that we've elected. Really? This guy. Now, I know a lot of you would say you didn't elect him, but. If he becomes president, then he is technically the guy. 
And so we look at this now and we say, what can we do in preparation? What can we do to get ready for this? Well, I can tell you this much. A lot of what they were saying about Trump will be true or would be true about a Biden administration. A lot of it would be accurate. For example, when they talked about state media under Trump, they would say this. They really would only say this as a knock on Fox News. And I was consistent in pointing out that state media would indicate that there's only really one acceptable media point of view. I mean, true state media, some places have a government, a kind of quasi government or government organ. But usually if there's an actual state media apparatus, the opposition is at a minimum uh, tiny. Right. The opposition is small. In this country, we had the opposite. We had 95 percent of journos out there, 95 percent of them anti the administration, and they advanced their careers Despite what they said, despite what Jim Acosta would pretend when he'd go to the White House, you know, they were not doing the the journalistic equivalent of storming the beaches of Normandy. They were advancing their careers. They were becoming more famous. They were fattening their paychecks. So in no way whatsoever, in no way do we see this now and have any reason to believe that Joe Biden will be anything other than uh, absolutely coddled and propped up and assisted by the media. That's what's going to happen. And you're going to hear a lot of empty rhetoric from Biden himself, but also from the people around him, because this is going to be the most incredible emperor has no clothes situation you've ever seen. The emperor's too old, he's incompetent, and he's corrupt. But they're going to tell you that this is great. There's going to be this amazing restoration of America that happens. You know that's a fraud. You know that's not true. The amount of lies that you are likely to be told in the next 90 days alone will surpass anything you've ever seen before. Because now the media doesn't even really pretend there's no objectivity. They picked a team. He's their team. This is what they're going to do. And here's what Biden was saying yesterday. On the one hand, calling for unity, calling to bring us all together and then trashing Trump. Play 18. By his own standards, these numbers represented a clear victory then, and I respectfully suggest they do so now. If anyone didn't know before, they know now. What beats deep in the hearts of the American people is this, democracy, the right to be heard, to have your vote counted, to choose leaders of this nation, to govern ourselves. In America, politicians don't take power. People grant power to them. The flame of democracy was lit in this nation a long time ago. And we now know nothing, not even a pandemic or an abuse of power, can extinguish that flame. Abuse of power. What was the abuse of power again? Bringing lawsuits? Something that they did endlessly and in bad faith against Trump to slow him down. But now the courts are bad. Understand that we are not only going into a post-journalism area with the Democrats. We're also going into a post principle era whatever they don't like whatever stands in their way they'll just discard they don't have to make any show of really caring what you think anymore this is about the raw exercise of political power they think they will have achieved it through this and look at what they did to get here biden's talking about democracy and how beautiful a thing it is now because he likes the outcome for him as it stands so far the rest of us stand around saying 
you guys changed the rules in an election year by hyperventilating about and exaggerating about the threat of COVID-19 only as it pertains, of course, to voting in person, not to having BLM rallies in the streets, not to any number of, of other activities that are Democrat approved. But voting, no, that that required enormous shifts in the actual mail in balloting process and and transforming the process in the year of the election and using it to the absolute maximum advantage. And, and I do at some level blame Republicans who are supposed to be the ones on guard against this, blocking this. I, I blame them for not doing more in advance, for not seeing this train coming down the tracks. Why do you think Pelosi and the other libs were going all out with the crazy post office conspiracy over the summer? So that's something that now we have to learn from, I hope, going forward, no matter what, no matter what we end up finding out here about the fraud. I will continue to look at every allegation, every bit of evidence that is presented here by the Trump legal team, by anyone who comes forward and has proof of fraud. We owe that to the country, but we also need to be ready for what is coming now. And you are going to see an administration that has the full and open partisan backing of the social media companies, the entirety of the journalistic media apparatus in its pocket, big government and big uh, business working hand in glove, not shedding any tears for the destruction, the wanton, reckless destruction of small businesses across the country as a result of these preposterous lockdowns Um, you're not gonna see any any tears over that they like this advantage that they have the eradication of small business is something that democrats aren't particularly upset about either every business that's independently owned and operated is a little bit of a of a pushback against central planning so they they prefer that they just have amazon and google and these mega corporations calling all the shots And making sure they go in favor of the Democrats. And we're going to be up against an administration that has already shown us. Again, assuming that this pathway continues, but we have to deal with the path that is before us. We're going to have an administration that is already compromised by China, our chief geopolitical rival. They lied about Russia collusion with Trump and pretended that Russia was a much greater threat than it was. But in fact, what they were saying about about Russia is true of China. It has infiltrated our government apparatus. It has been stealing our most sensitive information and secrets for years. And it has compromised the would be first family very directly and very obviously. So this is going to be an enormous challenge. I hope that no matter what President Trump and all of his uh, chief advisors and, and supporters will come together and face this as one. But this is where we are. The Electoral College, it is now President-elect Biden as of now. I I understand that you're going to tell me it's a fraud. And I share your sentiment. I share your outrage. But this is where we are now. I've been saying we trust the process. The process is not over, but we are taking stock of this today. We have our work cut out for us, friends. We have a Georgia election to win. We have judges that should be getting 
at the last minute here, pushed through as many federal judges as possible. I don't know what the heck is going on with the Republicans thinking that they can take it easy. And we have to start to make the argument against what will be a Biden administration that has a lot of support from very powerful people. And you will be told that what you know is not true and what you know isn't so. You got to relearn that part of it. Get ready for this, friends. We are in this together. We will eventually win. It's just a question of when. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Get the latest news and information from Buck by heading to BuckSexton.com. Four years ago, when I was a sitting vice president of the United States, it was my responsibility to announce the tally of the Electoral College votes in the joint session of Congress that voted to elect Donald Trump. I did my job. And I'm pleased, but not surprised, by the number of my former Republican colleagues in the Senate who have acknowledged already the results of the Electoral College. I thank them. And I'm convinced we can work together for the good of the nation on many subjects. That's the duty owed to the people, to our Constitution, to our history. You know, in this battle for the soul of America, democracy prevailed. We, the people, voted. Faith in our institutions held. The integrity of our elections remains intact. And now it's time to turn the page, as we've done throughout our history, to unite, to heal. Yeah, he sounds like he's in great shape, doesn't he? Everything's going to be just fine. It's going to be a great pres- <laughs> going to be a great presidency, folks. All, all eighteen months or so of it before he decides he's had enough. Although, you know, I will say a lot of us underestimated. You know, I don't think it's fair to say you under. I underestimated Joe Biden. I underestimated the Democrat willingness to put forward a a clownish buffoon, but to create a, a package of a Biden administration that they were able to sell to enough people uh, that they thought this was going to be much better. Look, the the Trump derangement syndrome that they spread all that the media spread all across the country, it, it certainly had an effect. I mean, there, there were a lot, a lot of people. The fact that Joe Biden, let, let's say Joe Biden cheated just theoretically. I don't want anyone to fact check me on this. But let, let's say Joe Biden had his had his team add a half a million votes to the tally. The fact that this guy still got the. 80 million votes, roughly, that that he is mind blowing. This clown, this guy whose son is getting spare keys made for him to open up the office where they're going to be peddling influence to the Chinese Communist Party when he's not, you know, getting strippers knocked up and pretending he's not the dad and doing all kinds of, you know, I mean, come on, this guy is going to be president. Uh, Maybe, maybe. I know it's not. Until he's sworn in. I mean, folks, I just want to know what what will be the at, at what point do you think that it's no longer an issue of having a backbone for the fight to call in the president? Do we do we wait? I, I will ask some folks this because I know today just by me saying I'm trying to take stock of where we are and be honest about this. I know people are going to email me and say that, you know, I don't have enough stomach for the fight or something like that. And I would just want to respond to them. What I've been saying fight every step of the way. But at some point. You know, at some point, we're the team that's staying behind on the field, at least for this particular game. When the other team is left, they're waving a trophy in the air and the stands have emptied out and the lights, you know, the, the, the field lights are getting turned off. Is it is it the inauguration day? Do I think that there's going to be an opportunity perhaps to 
bring action against Joe Biden and against uh, some of the other Demo- some of the Democrats who were involved in Russia collusion, for example, based on the Durham probe. I think it's possible. I wouldn't say it's likely at all. I always tell you, no one can predict the future. Obviously, not a lot of us conservatives can. I really believed in my heart that Trump was going to win. And yeah, I think that if only legal ballots were counted, I think that Trump did win. But I can't change this. You can't change this. I mean, I, I wish that I had the resources and the ability to go out there and find all this fraud and piece it all together. I'm, I'm willing to tell you, though, the people that, that are claiming that don't worry, it's still in the bag. There's the plan. Release the Kraken. They're not being honest with you. They're not being straight with you. Now, the, the best, the biggest, earliest Trump supporters that I know, people that I won't name because I've talked to them in confidence, but the ones that I know, they'll say offline, yeah, look, this is not it's not looking good, but we fight this to the end. That's where I am. I'm just telling you, let's let's deal with what's ahead of us. Continue to to push, see where this Antrim County uh, audit, the the forensic electronic audit really goes and understand that there's a lot there's a lot that we have here um, that we have to focus on. And I am very concerned about the trajectory of the U.S. uh, versus China under a possible Biden administration now. But, you know, this is. This is something that we we have to regain our focus here pretty quickly because they're going to want to hit the ground running. We are weeks away from an inauguration that the media is going to treat as a total reset. And remember, our freedoms are under assault because of covid in ways that are unimaginable. Uh, We have an enormous challenge ahead of us with the Chinese Communist Party. And we've got a buffoon in Joe Biden who's going to be the one calling the shots if this trend continues. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. For more Buck, head to BuckSexton.com. And remember to subscribe to the podcast. I mentioned the Michigan voting machine audit. I just want to say that the president of the United States, Donald Trump, was sharing this earlier today. This is what he thinks is going on here. And we should at least follow what the actual commander in chief is saying about all of this. He wrote on Twitter, quote, 68 percent error rate in Michigan voting machines should be by law a tiny percentage of one percent. Did the Michigan secretary of state break the law? Stay tuned. And then tremendous problems being found with voting machines. They are so far off. It is ridiculous. Able to take a landslide victory and reduce it to a tight loss. This is not what the USA is all about. Law enforcement shielding machines do not tamper a crime much more to come. OK, well, let's see what the much more to come is. As, as I've been telling you all along, I want more information. I want more data, more evidence. There is no there is no part of me that is saying, oh, if we find out. Right. Think of this almost like a murder investigation. All right. You, you can you can know that someone did the murder. You could know that someone did the murder as a law enforcement person. But. You can't hold them while you're gathering all the evidence if you if you have not yet, you know, charged them with the crime. Right. You can't just hold them. You're like, well, we think it's you, but we don't have the evidence yet to to go and and get an arrest warrant. And we don't have that. So we're just going to hold you until we find all of it. No, you got to release the person, even if you know, even if you know that they're probably guilty, but you don't have the proof yet. You got to release them. That doesn't mean, though, you can't come back to it later. 
So let's see. Let's see what we're able to, to, to pull together here. I've been hearing from people who are not just the Trump legal team, but are independently trying to assess and pull together all the data. You know, remember, it's one thing to show that it's almost impossible statistically for Trump to have lost in some of these places, but almost impossible without proof of the intentional fraud is not going to be enough to get a judge to say that there was cheating here. And that's not the same thing as saying there was no cheating. Right. So this is what I'm, I'm trying to I'm talking about the process and the system and trying to make us all understand what's really happening, what's unfolding before us right now. And it's infuriating. But this is it is what it is. Uh, so Trump is saying that they found these problems. We'll see what ends up happening. And as I've also told you, affidavits not going to be enough. Not going to be enough. You and I can sit here and have a conversation about how affidavits are. These are. Do I believe them? Yes, I do. Do I think that these people are telling the truth? Yeah. But is a judge going to say, well, this person saw a thousand ballots that it's inexplicable how they all went for Biden. But I'm going to invalidate then the hundred thousand ballots that were counted that day at that election site. They're not going to do that. The judge is not going to do that. So as I've been telling you, the uh, the affidavits are, are not enough. And look, I know if, if I'm wrong about any of this, I'll come back and I'll tell you that I'm wrong. I will tell you there are people out there right now who are just squabbling from the tra- from the scraps uh, or for the scraps from the Trump train. And it, it's really just about them. They, they don't there's no interest in in being honest with people because they don't want they don't want the shoot the messenger phenomenon to happen right now. You know, but the Electoral College met yesterday and it is now it is now president elect Joe Biden. That's that's where we are. And I I spit out the words, too, but I appreciate that those of you who are joining me here understand that we got to face this. We got to face it. We can't hide from it. Can't run from it. This is what we're dealing with. And you also have the resignation of Attorney General Barr that occurred yesterday. And let me say this. Um, I have been a a big proponent of the attorney general. I think that he's an excellent legal mind. I think he's a good and ethical man. And I understand there's a lot of frustration right now about both the Durham probe and the election. A few things here. One, he appointed Durham. Durham's the guy running that probe. And, you know, I don't there's no way for the attorney general that I'm aware of to say you need to speed this thing up. That could be considered un- undue interference. That that could be considered politicization. So he handed this off to somebody who's supposed to be a very dogged and thorough prosecutor. What I think a lot of people are finding out is prosecutors are just lawyers. They're just lawyers. There's, there's not some, uh, you know, factory of, of superheroes somewhere that's churning out great folks who will then all become prosecutors, right? There's bad prosecutors, good prosecutors. And so the Durham probe is frustrating, but I also never really believed that they would uh, that they would hold to to full account members of the deep state. They're too powerful. There's there's too many connections here among them. And then you have uh, the frustration over over Barr and the election. And I just he's not a judge. And I know this is not maybe a popular thing to say right now, but he's not a judge. What is he supposed to do here? People who say that the DOJ is not looking at these allegations, I have it on 
I have it on very good authority that they are looking at these allegations. And they are presenting uh, they are presenting this information up the chain and that. It's exactly what I've been saying. The Democrats removed the safeguards to be able to prove the fraud. So we can keep running around. I understand there's this frustration. People are it's like they're banging on the wall here saying, but there was fraud. I'm saying, I know, but you have to be able to prove it or judges will not do anything about it. This is where we are. You know, if, if you had a burglary and and somebody and somebody pulled all the of the, the alarms and the and the video cameras out of the room and all of a sudden the you know, the the diamond necklace is gone. You can talk about how it was stolen, but if you can't show any proof, no one's going to prison. That's what I'm trying to tell you. And other people aren't going to tell you that now. They're going to say, oh, the Kraken is just waiting on the side. No, it's not. It's not. I'm every bit as frustrated as you are. I think the four years of a Trump presidency was going to be four more years was going to be fantastic for us. We're going to have a great 2021 booming economy. Maybe, maybe we still get it, but not looking good. Uh, not looking good at all. Now, A.G. Barr resigned. Uh, this the, the last thing that the president said about him, I think, should be remembered here because there are a lot of people that are trashing the attorney general. And I, I think there are, there are people who have worked in the Trump administration at a very senior level. Uh, I think there, there are people who were completely incompetent, bad at their jobs and deserve to be fired. I think James Comey obviously deserved to be fired and sent to prison. But here's what Donald Trump wrote yesterday about the attorney general. Just had a very nice meeting with Attorney General Bill Barr at the White House. Our relationship has been a very good one. He's done an outstanding job. As per letter, Bill will be leaving just before Christmas to spend the holidays with his family. So there's the president saying, look, I like this guy and he's stepping down and that's fine. So let's not, you know, he's not some deep state stooge. He's not the enemy of the people or any of this stuff. He probably just realized he's in an unwinnable situation. He's just going to get blamed for things by people who understand that there was fraud in this election. But he has not, you know, the attorney general has not been able to find enough of it nor have they been able to present evidence in a federal court of it to to change the result. So he's in a losing position and he does. And he just figures, OK, look, have someone else do this. I get it. It's a thankless, a thankless role right now. And I just want everyone to be very clear. The president sent him. This is like being, you know, honorably discharged. The president said nice things about him on the way out. The president doesn't always do that, as you know. Uh, so. This is the attorney general saying, all right, I've done what I can. Maybe there's somebody better who can step up and do this. I'm going to go home with my family for Christmas. That's all it is. And I think the attorney general did a solid job. You're free to, of course, disagree with me on that. But I think that overall, the attorney general was an ethical guy. And for those of you who are going to really get mad at me, let me just say, Bill Barr was considered a stooge and a hatchet man by the media of Trump until five minutes ago. So. Something happened here, and it's not that, that the, the, the attorney general all of a sudden became some deep state operative, right? That's not what happened. Um, what happened is we've got a very frustrating election result, and there's a lot of blame going around right now, and including the people that don't deserve it. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Get more from Buck by following him on social media at Buck Sexton on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Let me ask you, Governor, there, there was an allegation made over the weekend on Twitter by a former aide of yours who said that 
accused you of sexual harassment so that it happened over a period of years. I, I wanted to get your reaction to that. Yeah, I heard about the uh, tweet uh, and what it said about uh, comments that I had made. And uh, it's not true, Zach. Uh, look, I, I fought for and I believe uh, a woman has the right to come forward and express her opinion uh, and uh, express issues and, and concerns that she has. Uh, but it's, uh, it's just not true. So he's calling her a liar. Can we, can we just all agree that that's what he is saying, that she is a liar? And I would just prefer it if he would come out and say that instead of playing this game where you have him say, I, 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 I fought for a right to come forward and, you know, to say the things, but uh, turns out that she's a big liar. Uh, look, I... I I don't think she's lying at all. And it's I, I know that you could say to me, oh, but Buck, it's because he's a Democrat and you don't like him and you think that he's, you know, King Cuomo and a maniac. I, I don't like him and I do think he's a maniac. And it's terrifying that he might be a an attorney general under a Biden administration. That's already been talked about. I, I find that deeply concerning. But I also am willing to give you my honest assessment of these things. I don't always think that these allegations, even though against Democrats, are true. They do tend to be true more often against high profile Democrats than they are against high profile Republicans. I'm, I'm, I'm going to say that there. You have noticed this, but it's not a, it's not an absolute. Uh, but Cuomo is a jerk and Cuomo is a guy who you can just tell. You can tell that he thinks that he can get away with stuff. He's known as a bully. He's known as being vindictive. He's not a nice guy. So, you know, when they accuse Kavanaugh who is like, you know, Ned Flanders went to Harvard Law School or something or Yale Law School. I forget which one. And, and is like this legal legal supermind who is coaching, you know, girls basketball on the weekend. Everybody loves him. They accuse him of being a serial gang rapist, one of the ugliest, most underhanded and, and disgraceful episodes in, in American politics in my lifetime. And no intelligent person could really believe that those things were true, but they wanted to believe it because they wanted to stop him from being on the Supreme Court. Look what we're seeing. The Supreme Court, even when you put constitutionalists on the left, and I'm going to say this and it's annoying, but you got to know the truth. When the left gets one of their judges on, they've got somebody who plays for their team. When the right gets one of their judges on, they've got somebody who adheres to the Constitution. You can see this. The left Dis, the left does not disappoint their side. They get what they want. That's what an activist judge means. That's their mandate. Give us what we want. Right. Create a living constitution model where you just decide that you think this is better and the progressives should get their way for the on the right. Constitutionalist judges, they say, look, I don't like this policy or I don't think this is a good idea, but it is constitutional. So I can't do anything about it. You just think about think of big cases. That's what keeps happening. Um, but bring, bring it back to Cuomo. So they'll, they'll say that uh, Boy Scout Kavanaugh is a bad guy and you know he's a rapist and all this stuff. It's just absurd. And I'm never letting that go. That in some ways was almost as radicalizing and perhaps it was as radicalizing a moment for many conservatives as the Russia collusion lies about Trump. Because it was so, so obviously false and so vicious and. Um, I'm never going to forget it. Never going to forgive it either. But then you have Cuomo. Here's a guy who is a jerk. 
and everyone knows it. And he's power mad. And I believe there was actually a domestic disturbance at his house once when he was married and the police showed up and then everyone had to pretend it didn't happen. He shut down the Moreland Commission and the corruption of him just essentially by intimidating and, you know, scaring everybody. He's a bad guy. He's just a bad guy. And now he's being accused of things that remember she didn't go overboard she wasn't saying oh you know he drugged me and all this other stuff i mean i mean not that that couldn't happen but that would be a bit that would be a pretty extreme allegation she says that he said uh you know sexist comments and talked about my appearance and you know if you look at the woman in question i'm i find it very credible that cuomo would comment on her appearance i don't think that that's a stretch at all and i'm just bringing this up because get ready to kind of stay with our prepare for the battle ahead mentality today. Get ready for the double standards that we saw in a in the first four years of Trump going forward under a, a Biden administration will be just mind blowing. Uh, they won't have any standards except double standards. They will just everything that they've said in the past, whether it's about the grounds for impeachment whether it's about the Me Too movement, women have a right. Women have a right to be believed was the that was the line. That was the claim that was made whenever, whether it was Trump or Kavanaugh or any, any Republican was accused of anything. And there were some people like uh, Cosby and um, Weinstein who weren't politicians, but were, you know, I guess, Democrats. Weinstein's clearly a Democrat. Who were guilty. And so, yeah, those women did have a right to be believed because they were telling the truth. But now, all of a sudden, when it's Cuomo, they're going to uh, they're going to avoid talking about this story and they're going to take his word for it. And they'll let him get away with the formulation that he gave you there where he's just saying, oh, she has a right to come forward. What, well, what does that mean? We were told that she has a right to be believed. Hillary Clinton said about women coming forward with allegations. They have a right to be believed. And, and now we. When there's a Democrat is in trouble all of a sudden. Now we have a oh, I don't know. I don't know if we can really take that seriously anymore. That standard that we were using to try to uh, eviscerate Republicans. Maybe we need to be a little more thoughtful about how we do this. Maybe we need to be a little more uh, evidentiary in the way that we approach these things. And I sit here saying, wow. No, 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 duh. No surprise, huh? Hmm. And and Cuomo is going to get away with this. There will be no consequences from whatsoever. Uh, Democrat voters in New York State, where I am, at least for now, I, I don't know what it's going to take for them to realize this guy is a nightmare. It, I, I don't know. I mean, you'd, you'd think that at this point they would have figured it out and they want anybody but him. The media loves this guy. They love him. So he can get away with anything. And he's about to get away with the sexual, the sexual harassment allegations. That's for sure. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. For more Buck, head to BuckSexton.com. And remember to subscribe to the podcast. What are we really seeing when it comes to the results of these lockdowns? And what has the data told us so far about so many of these expert predictions when it comes to COVID-19 and how we're supposed to handle it? We're joined now by Phil Kirpin. He's a syndicated columnist and also the president of American Commitment. Phil, thanks for making the time. Great to be with you, Buck. Let's talk about schools first. What does the data tell us about school 
lockdowns at this stage, or, or, or I should just say school closures. It's not even really lockdowns. Closing schools and doing only virtual learning. Uh, probably the single biggest policy mistake of the entire year, which is saying a lot because we've had a lot of policy mistakes. Uh, it's interesting. The original CDC guidance on schools was really balanced, and I think anyone who actually read it and paid attention would not have closed schools, and yet we had sort of this panic contagion that swept the whole country and all the schools were closed and a lot of them never reopened or opened on very limited part-time schedules. And, uh, and it's interesting, there was a study in the Journal of the American Medical Association a couple of weeks ago, they looked at just the impact of elementary school closures and just for two months in the spring and they calculated five million years of life lost uh, from you know two months of elementary school closures, which is probably more years of life lost than we're gonna have from the coronavirus. Uh, there's a very strong relationship between educational attainment not, and not just income, but life expectancy as well. The difference between a high school graduate and a high school dropout on average is about five years of life expectancy. Um, the online learning is not working for a lot of people. For some kids, it's fine. Uh, some of them are doing okay, but a lot of kids are failing, a lot more kids than ever failed uh, with traditional school. And uh, that has major long-term consequences, both economic and health consequences. And so we're, we're essentially imposing enormous harms and enormous, enormous costs on children societally, uh, even though children are at a near zero risk, a certainly much lower risk uh, with coronavirus than they are from seasonal flu, which is five to 10 times more deadly for children than coronavirus, uh, and that we tolerate, and that we think is a perfectly acceptable low level of, of risk. And so children have really been the biggest losers in our policy response uh, to, to COVID. It feels increasingly, Phil, like the elimination of, of any tolerable risk when it comes to COVID has been at the center of, of a lot of the policies that we see. And uh, restaurants in New York City have just been closed as of this week. Contact tracing showed that they were responsible for, they believe, about 1% of the spread. So what, are, what have we learned about where is the virus spreading in New York and its, and its environs? Because that's, that's also a good proxy for where it would be spreading in other densely populated parts of the country. Well, the uh, the data that New York published, and it's interesting because they published, you know, very, very similar data back in May and then ignored it. And now they're finding the same thing again, which is uh, almost all of the spread is inside of homes, inside of households. And, uh, you know, New York, of course, has a lot of high density residential, a lot of multifamily, uh, you know, apartment buildings. And, and uh, so, you know, it may be a little bit different there than some other places, but by and large, I think it's now pretty clear from the contact tracing we've seen all over the country that uh, there's not a lot of spread in places like restaurants and retail and so forth. The, the spread tends to happen, uh, sort of the one-to-one person-to-person spread tends to happen uh, inside of homes. Now, we also have this other problem of these occasional sort of super spreader events, which are hard to predict, and we still don't really know why some small percentage of people with this virus, and it's only maybe 10%, something like that, seem to be responsible for you know a lot of the spread. And so you know if you got on ad, the average person who gets this virus infects zero or one other people, and then but then you've got this small group that infects tons of people, and you know we still don't really know what makes them different and why they tend to infect lots of people. And you know, I wish a more research were going into that because that would be very useful to sort of identify and be able to predict what those characteristics are. Uh, but by and large, uh, what we saw in the New York did, and it was remarkable because Governor Cuomo came out and he said, look, 
here's the data, 75% of transmission is in homes, 1% is in restaurants, so I'm closing restaurants. And, uh, you know, then he said, well, you know, because it's something we can do, you know, we can't close homes, we can close restaurants, but of course, just because you can do something doesn't mean that it's actually, you know, he said, you know, it's only a small difference, but it's something we can do, you know, but if you look at the data, Buck, it's more likely to be a negative difference than a positive difference, because if you say, you know, we're going to push gatherings and holiday gatherings and dinners and all this kind of stuff out of restaurants where people are being very strict with their distancing and their hygiene and all this stuff, we're going to push them out, we're going to close. Now they're going to take place in homes instead. You know, some of them won't take place at all, but a lot of them will take place in homes instead uh, without any of those precautions. And so in my judgment, the restaurant closure is not only economically devastating, uh, but it's more likely to increase transmission than to decrease it because people are going to meet in uh, home settings instead. Well, this was a concern also last winter at the, or late, late in the winter when we recognized that New York City was facing this this first big wave of covid cases. They they went into the the uh, 15 days to stop the spread and the stay at home orders. And a lot of people are saying, well, hold on a second. We've had this virus is all over the place already. And now what you're going to be doing by shutting down the schools, shutting down anywhere for people to places for people to go is you might actually be forcing. And you mentioned multi-generational, multi-family homes, dense housing, uh, which is all over New York City, where people it's very difficult to really stay far away from others. It may have effectively sent everyone home to infect their family members inadvertently. But that that was always a concern. Yeah, I think that uh, that almost certainly was a big part of what happened in New York uh, back in the spring. Now, the good thing you've got going for you now uh, in New York is, you know, so many people have already had it. You have a very high level of community immunity, probably higher than anywhere else in the United States. And so, you know, if you look at the New York state numbers, it's now mostly outside of the New York City area. It's sort of the rest of the state is kind of catching up. Uh, New York City uh, if you look at the hospital utilization and the emergency room data, you, you've actually got lower emergency room visits for respiratory illnesses and influenza-like illness now than in you know any of the previous five years this time of year. So you're actually lower than normal in New York City, uh, I think, because you've got a lot of community immunity to COVID and because the other factor, which is happening everywhere in the world right now, with very little attention paid to it, uh, there's almost no flu activity this year. And we don't know if that's because the, you know, the policy measures like the masks and the distancing and school closures are somehow more effective for flu than they are for COVID, or if the virus itself has somehow disrupted. We don't really know why it's the case, uh, but it's a remarkable story because remember the experts said we're gonna have this twindemic, flu's gonna hit at the same time as COVID, all the hospitals gonna be overwhelmed. Instead, we've got you know, the mildest flu season since at least 2015. And maybe, you know, we'll see if it doesn't take off at all, maybe uh, the mildest flu season on record. So you've got, you know, really underutilization of hospitals in a place like New York City that has relatively little COVID activity because we're not seeing any flu. I, I pulled some numbers last week. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up, uh, Phil. I'm speaking to Phil Kirpin, syndicated columnist, uh, journalist. And uh, Phil, I, I looked at the initial now. Now, I had someone write. I've had people write into me since to say we're not really testing for flu the way that we normally do. And to that, I say, OK, because I, I am asking, you know, so sometimes people are asking a question and they're really trying to push a conclusion. I'm actually asking the question, but I, I pose to to the audience. I said, you know, the initial data on the CDC website for the first week of December and and I think it was it was low for what they actually had for COVID. So this was initial data. So the numbers are clearly going to go up 
And, you know, maybe it went from, you know, maybe might might even go up by a factor of 10, let's say. Right. I mean, it could go up substantially. But the initial data said that they had something like uh, 2000 plus covid deaths in the first week of December that were officially covid, you know, meaning that this is the what they had three, three from the flu. Now, I I could understand more covid. I could understand. But there's clearly something going on here. I mean, you mentioned some of the, the possibilities. There's no way that you have almost a factor of a thousand more covid deaths than you do flu deaths, given what we would see in a normal flu season. That's not possible. Well, uh, you know, flu peaks ha- are more often in January and February than they are in November and December. Sometimes you have you know earlier flu seasons. Uh, so, you know, a lot of people say, well, you know, flu's not here yet. It's still coming. That might be true. But We've never seen levels this low. We've never seen levels this low. And if you look at the CDC flu testing data, it's down about 95%, 90, you know, 95 to almost 100% some weeks. We've had like 98% reduction from the five-year average. Uh, and it's not that we're not testing. The flu tests are actually higher than the five-year average, and they're actually at a record high of the number of flu tests that the CDC tracks. And the CDC only tracks clinical labs and public health labs, so they don't track you know like the rapid tests in a doctor's office that's not in the stats so they only have thousands of tests they don't have millions of tests uh but it's still uh it indicates that i i think one of three things is going on buck either uh we've got the public health measures that are being implemented for some reason are very effective at stopping flu even though they don't seem to be they're not effective at stopping COVID, right go ahead right so that's a little hard to believe although a lot of people have been saying that or Somehow the COVID virus itself disrupts the flu virus, which is possible. There's a phenomenon called viral interference. And this was actually how swine flu ended back in 2009. The rhinovirus came in and it sort of just knocked it out. You know, people got that instead and it sort of knocked it out. And there was some hope. There was actually an article, you know, months ago, hoping that flu season would come in and sort of disrupt COVID. That definitely didn't happen, but maybe the opposite happened. Maybe COVID disrupted flu. And, you know, once you get COVID, you're mucus buildup blocks flu or some mechanism causes viral interference or the third possibility is that we've got some sort of a data artifact where maybe you know we're getting so many false positives for covid that people get flu they test false positive it goes into the stats as a covid uh case instead of a flu case uh, maybe uh there's a timing issue where even though we have lots of flu tests people are only taking the flu test after they get a negative COVID test back, and by then flu is not detectable anymore. Some people have suggested that. So there basically there are three possibilities, uh, in my judgment. Either the policies are actually stopping flu somehow, uh, there's actual viral interference, or we've got some sort of a data artifact based on the sequence and the way that we're doing the testing uh, that's causing the flu cases to be mischaracterized as COVID. So it's gotta be one of those three things. I'm not sure which it is or if it's a combination. Uh, but I, I wish there were a lot more curiosity about this, uh, you know, among the media and about, you know, among the public health officials, because it's a pretty remarkable uh, phenomenon. What it, we're seeing. Talk, talk phenomenon. to me about this. And we're speaking to Phil Kirpin. Uh, he is the president of American Commitment and he's a syndicated columnist. Phil, the, I, I see all these charts and I've, I've looked at some of the data myself and they show mask mandates going into place on a timeline and, the, you know, for, for a state, right, whether it's California or Hawaii or New York or wherever, mask mandate goes into effect. And then you have countless charts where you just give it time and the cases just skyrocket after the mandate goes into effect. 
What can we just tell from the numbers about this as a policy? Can can we draw any conclusions or you or, or can you draw any conclusions from what we're seeing? Uh, I don't think masks have any effect on uh, mask mandates. Uh, and, you know, we should we should differentiate the two mask mandates and masks are not necessarily synonymous because just because a mandates in an area doesn't mean everyone's wearing them or wearing them properly or handling them properly and so forth. You know, the reason historically uh, we've never recommended masks outside of medical settings is it's actually really hard to use a mask properly to make sure you never touch the outside to remove it and carefully and throw it out or wash it without ever touching the outside. And you know, that's why we've never recommended them in non-medical settings, because even if they work sort of conceptually in sort of a lab test, we never had confidence that people would use them correctly in a way that actually could be beneficial. And I think that based on the data that I'm seeing, you know, it's sort of you could go either way on whether they work in an idealized setting. There is a lot of lab data showing that they probably would be beneficial if they were used sort of perfectly. Uh, but in practice, I don't see any evidence that they've been beneficial at all. And, you know, the, there's, there's cherry picking that goes on. And the CDC had a couple of very low quality studies looking at Arizona and Kansas, where they essentially just cherry picked their end dates uh, and their comparators and they said, look, masks are the reason we saw a decline. And, if, you know, if you look at kind of what's happened seasonally, you have, you have essentially identical patterns in places with and without mask mandates if they've got the same geography and the same uh, sort of time of year. And so I don't think that they make a difference one way or the other. You could argue, some have suggested they may actually be harmful. The reason that the Nordic states have all avoided the mask mandates, uh, you know, Sweden, Denmark, Norway, and so forth, is they say, look, you know, the mask doesn't really do that much, especially the way a typical person handles it, who's not well-trained the way a surgeon would be and so forth. But if you tell people that the mask protects you, uh, then suddenly they're gonna stand right next to each other for prolonged periods of time with masks on, and they're gonna think they don't need to keep their distance. And oh, and, and I'm sure people that have mild COVID. They might go out of the house even if they're feeling sick because they right. have the mask on. And so the, you know, a false belief that a mask will protect you might actually put you at more risk. This is what I've been saying. You're going to have people that say, well, maybe I got COVID, but my symptoms aren't that bad. And I'm wearing a mask, so I'm good to go. It's like, no, this is a bad idea. This is a bad idea. But I, I, I'm, I could guarantee that's been happening all over the country, all over the world. Phil, look, I appreciate that you're willing to take a, take a look at the data here on the numbers and come to conclusions that, you know, aren't right in line with the consensus. I feel like this is. The brainwashing that has gone on on this issue is unlike anything else I've ever seen in my life. I just want to give you the last word. Yeah, I mean, probably the most frightening thing of the past year, Buck, has been the extent to which uh, people not only accepted all of these various arbitrary government decrees, but demanded them and welcomed them and cheered them on. And uh, I think the extent to which a large portion of the public uh, supports the heavy-handed you know, government policy response is probably the most frightening uh, takeaway of this whole thing. And, uh, you know, it means we could we could see this again every time there's a disease. So I, I am I am concerned about that. And I share your, uh, uh, you know, I share your sentiments on that. Phil Kirpin, president of American Commitment. Phil, really appreciate it. Talk to you soon. All right. Have a good one.